Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, the man causing not ripples, but waves and in technology investment. A massive rock has been dropped into the Silicon Valley pond, both for the venture capital industry and for all the entrepreneurs that are eyeing this fund, hoping that they will be able to get some of its riches. And how non-compete clauses harm the working lives of many US employees. They basically gum up the wheels of commerce. So you see less job mobility, you see a downward effect on wages, you see less company formation. So all of those things are associated with non-compete clauses in the States. First, President Trump has unexpectedly pledged to save the Chinese telecoms company ZTE from what it claims to be crippling US sanctions. The president tweeted that too many jobs in China would be lost. This U-turn comes ahead of a second round of trade talks between America and China this week. Henry Trix, The Economist's energy and commodities editor, joins me. Henry, it's a very fast-moving story, but where are we at right now with ZTE? It seems to have been a remarkable U-turn over the weekend because a year ago, ZTE was sanctioned and fined more than a billion dollars for violating sanctions with North Korea and Iran. And very recently, those sanctions were strengthened by the Commerce Department. It accused ZTE of not firing the executives responsible, and it banned American companies from providing any kind of services or products to ZTE. Now, ZTE is the Chinese handset maker. It makes telephones, cell phones that are sold all over the world. They're very cheap, but they absolutely rely on American technology. They rely on American chips. They rely on Android technology. And so these sanctions from the Commerce Department pretty much instantaneously led to the virtual collapse of ZTE. And suddenly we have the president coming out saying that actually there can be some sort of a solution, which suggests that far from being just a, uh, a simple case of sanctions for violating the law, it's now become a bargaining chip in some kind of uh, trade negotiation between the US and China. So there are several trade negotiations and several sanctions flying around at the moment. But I mean, the point of sanctions is to make make companies or make countries suffer. I mean, we've seen Roussel really suffer as well, haven't we, recently? Yes, Roussel was hit by sanctions within the last couple of months. This caused a dramatic impact on its aluminium supply. It's a supplier of 6% of the world's aluminium. Suddenly, companies found that they couldn't trade with Roussel because they were worried about violating the sanctions. It meant that everyone from sort of car manufacturers to tin can makers were suddenly finding themselves short of aluminium. Hey, presto, there was some lobbying by companies associated with Roussel in Washington. And again, 
those sanctions were relaxed and put back at least, in a sense, the sword of Damocles was just taken off for another six months or so. So um, the message here for companies, I think, is that there is something quite capricious about US sanctions. Now, it's always been incredibly difficult to deal with sanctions. We have another situation at the moment with the Trump administration announcing last week the sanctions on Iran. That is obviously going to have another hugely chilling effect on, on business. I mean, interestingly enough, many companies that were able to trade with Iran over the last two years when sanctions were not in place did not do so simply because they feared um, that any entanglement would eventually cause them problems if sanctions were reimposed, and they have been now. So sanctions have always been a political matter, at least partly. But there were procedures that you went through. The, the Commerce Department or somebody you know, followed its guidelines, came to a conclusion that maybe somebody was stealing intellectual property or was breaking the law in some other ways, and then decided what the penalty would be. And now, as you say, this all seems to have got sucked into this this multi-fronted trade war or trade negotiation with China, with Europe, within NAFTA. I presume nobody knows which way is up. I think that's that's right. I mean, if you are a sanctioned entity and you have a pretty powerful country like China behind you, you presumably feel a little bit reassured if you also have you know a very politically connected constituency you may feel reassured but you know for most companies doing business with any sanctioned company this represents a you know a huge a huge threat and also bear in mind that OFAC which is the agency in Washington that's responsible for applying these sanctions and for licensing exemptions from the sanctions. This is incredibly understaffed. Its director resigned just a few weeks ago, and it has more on its plate than it probably ever has in the past. So it just becomes a remarkably difficult situation for anyone trying to deal with this. Thanks, Henry. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, who's the most influential person in technology? If I'd asked you that a few years ago, you might have said Jeff Bezos, Jack Ma, or even Mark Zuckerberg. But technology is a very fast-changing world. And today there's a new contender, Masayoshi Son of SoftBank with his Vision Fund. Tamsin Booth, our business editor, is here to tell me all about him. Who is this? He's really one of the very few Japanese business people, sort of chief executives and founders, who has a really extraordinary risk appetite. He's most famous for having lost the most personal wealth of anyone in history during the dot-com bust. But now he, he really is back and becoming very prominent. And it's really because of this absolutely monster tech fund that he's that he's put together with 100 billion in it. 100 billion, that's an absolutely vast industry changing amount. Tell us about what this fund is meant to do. It is an extraordinarily large fund. It's really as if a massive rock has been dropped into the Silicon Valley pond, both for the venture capital industry and for all the entrepreneurs that are eyeing this fund, hoping that they will be able to get some of its riches. The fund is obviously there to, to make big returns. 
like any fund. It's it's not a venture capital fund. It's sort of too big and it has different methods than than those. It's not really a private equity fund either. So it sort of resists definition. It's it's something that's really is the particular creature of Massa as he's really widely known. He, people don't really call him Masayoshi Son or Mr. Son. They call him Massa. So the fund is there to make your classic kind of venture capital investments. But it's different in the sense that it's really trying to push frontier technologies like self-driving cars, like new kinds of ways to, to test blood for cancer, robotics, artificial intelligence, all the sort of the bits of kit that will that will bring the Internet of Things together. Massa has, the, has this sort of particular vision of technology sort of 30, 50 years out that he's really trying to push into being. And that's the word he's chosen, vision, for the name of this fund, presumably because it is so visionary. That's absolutely right. And it, if you like, it's a, it's a sort of double vision because he has a, he has, he has a lot of the, the, the money that is in the 100 billion fund um, um, 45 billion comes from Saudi Arabia, um, from Mohammed bin Salman, who has his own vision for the transformation of his country. So it's so it's two visions to, to meeting together. Obviously, he's lost more money than anyone else in history before. He could do that again. He's got a lot of money to play with. This is presumably quite high risk to be betting in what's going to be transformational decades down the line. That's absolutely right. I mean, just to, to put the, the size of the fund in perspective, 100 billion, the next three biggest growth equity funds in venture capital add up to 12 billion. So that's three funds. The 100 billion is four times the size of the biggest private equity fund that's ever been raised. It is the, simply the biggest fund out there. And yes, absolutely, the, the risk is, is very high. One reason is that um, the, the laws of investing and, and, and of statistics mean that if you're investing a, a much bigger sum of money, it's just but the laws of mathematics say that it's harder to make a high return on that. It's not, a, it's not all equity. So there's a large slug of debt in it. And that debt pays, um, it earns a return of 7% before the equity holders, um, mainly Massa and his company SoftBank, um, before they get any return at all. So in itself, it's a leveraged fund, which is, which is highly unusual. I mean, you wouldn't have a venture capital fund that has debt in it. So the structure itself is, is very interesting in that regard. And can they find enough projects to invest in with that much money? Are they giving people very large amounts? They're finding it fairly easy. I mean, of course, giving money to people is not difficult. A problem is that, you know, they're really having to give huge checks to small companies in order to deploy the money. You said this was like a big stone thrown into a pond, and that's true for both venture capital and the tech landscape. What's the effect going to be? There are a lot of complaints about this fund. Some people argue that essentially there's just a lot of jealousy around in Silicon Valley because the fund is so large and because the size of checks that it's putting into companies is quite hard to keep up with for the rest of the firms. So one complaint is, is just that it's really pumping up valuations of tech companies even beyond what they are already, which is, which is very high. Some of the most famous names in Silicon Valley, such as Sequoia, Axel, um, Benchmark, they're all watching to see what it does. And some of them are trying to raise sort of much larger funds than they ever have in order to, to compete with it. So when it comes to the firms that are being invested in, a really important impact is that some of the more cutting edge ones are getting 
much more funding than they would have done otherwise. So, for instance, the, in, the, in the field of indoor vertical farming, the Vision Fund has put $200 million into a, a company called Plenty, which um, has not as yet started selling its produce, but is already targeting expansion globally. So you're going to get much, potentially much faster rollout of frontier technologies, and that's exactly what um, Massa wants to achieve. But on the other hand, there is a, there's, there's a very real risk that he is stuffing small companies with far too much capital, and that encourages indiscipline, potentially sort of just wasting of money, um, making acquisitions just for the point of it. And it also raises the cost of, of, of running a startup for all founders, because you then to compete with a, with a firm that's backed by Mr. Son, you, you have to spend a lot more on sales and marketing and so on. And there's also the risk that, um, that Massa simply picks the wrong company. He has a real kind of king-making power. If one of those companies blows up because of you know just it being stuffed with too much money, perhaps then capital might desert the whole area for quite a while. So both a huge bet and a risky bet. That's absolutely right. Massa and his investors, including Saudi Arabia, including Apple, including the limited partners in the fund, they may end up not getting a great return, certainly on the equity portion of, of, the, of the 100 billion. But there's no doubt that the impact on technology and the impact on venture capital will, in any case, be really profound. Thanks, Tamsin. Thank you. Let us know what you think about the SoftBank bet or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, non-compete clauses. An astonishing share of all American workers have to sign these, everyone from people working in fast food chains right up to people working in big tech firms. Andrew Palmer, our business affairs editor, is here to tell me about them. Andrew, what are they? Hi, Helen. Well, they're contractual clauses that require you when you leave your current employer not to work for a rival employer for a set period of time. So basically, they keep you off the market from a rival employer. I presume that there are reasons that a firm might want to do this that make some sense, like that they don't see, you know, good training walk out the door or that they don't lose uh, professional secrets. Yeah, that's right. Both of those um, are arguments that defenders of non-compete clauses put forward that, you know, if you're relatively comfortable that an employee won't go off and take skills or trade secrets, then you're therefore much more incentivized to invest yourself or to train your staff. And there is some research that shows that that effect does exist. And then on a principled level as well, people make the argument that it's up to an individual and their employer to be able to contract in whatever way that they want. So both of those sets of arguments that are practical and principled are made. But on the downside, I presume that it weakens your bargaining power as well in the workplace. It does. I mean, it means that uh, you cannot leave and go to wherever you want in the marketplace. It may therefore incentivize you not to leave at all. It may make it hard for you to go and work for a startup, so a competitor to your existing employer. And there are lots and lots of pieces of evidence to show that those kind of societal effects exist and are not good, that they basically gum up the wheels of commerce. So you see less job mobility, you see a downward effect on wages, you see less company formation. So all of those things are associated with non-compete clauses in the states. Are there states where it's easier or harder to restrict employees in this way? 
Yeah, so the standout here is California, which basically says that these clauses are, are unenforceable, except in very narrow circumstances. And California, of course, is an economy that does pretty well for itself, very, very innovative. And there is a case made that you can trace some of the Silicon Valley effect to the fact that non-compete clauses are not prevalent there. And then elsewhere in the States, they are enforced to various degrees of, of um, stringency. So why don't the States look at California and say, we'd like a bit of that, thanks? Uh, that's a really good question. And in fact, there is a little bit of a backlash going on now. So you do see some states starting to tighten up the rules and make them less able to use non-compete clauses. But sitting outside the states, it does look pretty obvious that there's some kind of correlation there. So what sort of restrictions might a state decide to put on what's allowed in a non-compete agreement? They might uh, define only a very narrow set of circumstances in which you can you can enforce them. So, for example, if you have a, an owner of a business who has some kind of market power contracting with a potential buyer, it might be fine for the, those two parties to an agreement to uh, agree a non-compete clause. That seems, that seems relatively reasonable. There might be cases in which an employee genuinely has trade secrets, in which case, you know, that agreement might be enforceable. Those are things which California actually allows for. Elsewhere in the States, it's sort of open season. It it appears to be used in an indiscriminate way. So you have employees who don't have access to trade secrets, who work in relatively low level positions in industries like fast food, where they don't seem to have any likelihood of being party to really important commercial secrets. But they're nonetheless bound by these agreements. And they're bound not just by the letter of the law, but also by the fear of the law. So it may be the case that being worried that you might get sued by your ex-employer stops you from going to a competitor, even if you don't have to worry about the courts. And we've written in The Economist several times about ways in which the American economy is becoming less competitive, it's becoming more concentrated and so on. Is this part of that picture? I think it is. I mean, the arguments against non-competes have been sort of relatively well rehearsed for a number of number of years, partly because of California's success. But what's happened now is that the argument that, you know, firms, existing firms will invest more, they'll train more. Those arguments are weaker now because we're in a less competitive economy. And so the incentives for existing firms, for incumbents to behave in that way are going down. So the sort of the the balance, the trade-offs here are are changing in a way that non-competes in effect reinforce those bad non-competitive trends in the wider economy. Well, it'll be interesting to see if any of those new laws stick. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Helen. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.